0: As you're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 13, here we are looking again for the second week in a row here at the life of King Saul, uh, particularly his early reign over the nation of Israel. He is the king that the people of Israel have asked God for, and he has given him Saul. A outline of the passage, so you know what we're about to read, could be as follows. The first seven verses... We see that there is the conflict renewed with the Philistines, their neighbors, their enemies. Here's the setting of our passage today. And then in verses 18 through 15, we see that though Saul is king, he will not have a dynasty. And it's because of what happens here in this chapter. Largely verses 8 through 15 are a dialogue between the prophet Samuel and King Saul. And then the chapter closes with a little more context of what is going on in the nation at this time. In verses 16 through 23, we see the advantage that the Philistines have over the Israelites. Before we read the chapter, and before we pray, I do want to call one thing to your attention. Um, verse one has troubled Old Testament scholars and readers of the Bible for a very long time. Uh, let me read it for us real quick. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and he had reigned for two years over Israel. Well, this would be the normal regal formula at the beginning of a king's reign. Uh, we see this in First and Second Kings and different places in the Bible where it introduces us to the narrative of a king, and it would say the king was crowned king at a certain age and reigned for so many years. But you can see the, the challenge here is that on the surface, it appears that The writer of Samuel is telling that Saul became king when he was one years old, and it doesn't make sense within the context of the story, and that he only reigned for two years. Um, This is a challenge of either two things. Um, It's either a challenge of transmission or a challenge of translation. Uh, Transmission being that the writer of Samuel intended to include these numbers, his age when he became king and how long he reigned and for some reason or another, they were either lost as First Samuel was copied, or he never got around to adding the numbers in, and then we don't know this information. And so, many people find this uh, to be troubling. The book of Acts does tell us that Saul reigned over Israel as king for 40 years. I think it's more of an issue of translation. Uh, we got the best translation of the Hebrew here in English, but just because we're able to translate it doesn't mean conceptually we have the same ideas. Uh, The word Saul lived for one year could be Saul was of a certain age. This word is also used for the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus when a ram or a goat was of a certain age, no longer a newborn, roughly a year old or so, they were ready to be sacrificed. It could be said here of when Saul was a certain age, he became king. And then he reigned for two years over Israel. And it could be a comment on the nature of his reign, that though he was king over Israel for 40 years, he was a short reign of faithfulness to God. And it was early in his reign that he proved himself to be disobedient to God. And therefore, the legitimacy of his reign before God was short, possibly only two years. Now... This doesn't need to trouble us as far as the interpretation of the passage and how it applies to us as Christians. But we do need the Holy Spirit's help. So let us go to him and ask for prayer. God, this is your word, and we desire to submit our whole selves to it. So we ask that your spirit working among us would give us ears to hear, and eyes to see, and that through our reading and through the preaching of 1 Samuel 13, that our faith would be built, that we would be instructed in the way in which we should go. So we ask that your spirit would work among us, that Christ would be glorified, and that we would grow in his grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Hear the word of God from 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And all the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in the multitude. They came up and encamped in Micmash to the east of Bethhaven, When the men of Israel saw that, they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves, and in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me, and peace offerings." And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord." So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp on the Philistines in three companies, One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shul, another company turned towards Bethlehem, and another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zebulun, toward the wilderness. There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and the third of the shekel for the sharpening of the axe and for the setting of the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Amen. That ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth On all our hearts. Well, his conversion has to be one of the most famous conversions in the history of the church. Certainly one of the most talked about. It has a tremendous impact on Western culture. Talking about Augustine of Hippo. And in his book, The Confessions. Augustine reflected on the sinfulness of his heart. And he writes, I stole something I had plenty and much better quality. There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. Though attractive in neither color nor taste, to shake the fruit off the tree and carry off the pears, I and a gang of naughty adolescents sought off late at night. We carried off a huge load of pears. But they were not for our feast, but merely to throw at pigs. Even if we ate a few, nevertheless, our pleasure was in doing what was not allowed. Such was my heart, O God. Such was my heart. You had pity on it when it was at the bottom of the abyss. End quote. Augustine is reflecting on the sinfulness of his heart here. And I know some of you are thinking, what kind of temptation was that? And there's probably others in here who say, throwing pears at pigs? Don't knock it till you tried it. (laughs) But what was the sinfulness that Augustine was getting at? It was that these pears weren't as good as the ones he had in his own vineyard, and there was this cruelty towards the pigs and this leading of others, and he was taking delight in this mischief as a young man, and it was an indication of that something was wrong with his heart, that it was an abyss. It was at the bottom of the abyss, and God had had pity on him. He's recognizing that these foolish, sinful actions, immature, had come from his heart, In both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word heart occurs a total of over a thousand times in the Bible, which makes it the most common anthropological term in the scripture. And what does that mean? It is something in our physical body that the scriptures point to that teaches a truth about who we are, spiritual lessons. So the heart in scripture is the center of who we are physically and who we are emotionally and intellectually, and morally. Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way, the heart is the central core and drive of my life intellectually. He means it involves my mind. It is the central core and drive of my life affectionately, meaning it shapes my soul. It is the central core and drive of my life totally, Because the energy for living comes from our hearts. Our actions arise out of our hearts. Jesus said so in Matthew chapter 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And in the case of Augustine, stealing pears and throwing them at pigs. Now, one of the refrains you hear, both explicitly and implicitly in our day is to follow your heart. It is the lesson and tale of many cartoons and Disney movies and much of what is sung and heard in music. It's the assumption that your heart will guide you to what is true and to what is good and to what is beautiful. But the scriptures because of our sinfulness and because of our fallen nature, have great warnings and contradict that. The scriptures teach us that our bad behavior, our misdeeds, our sins, our trespasses, aren't disconnected from a sincere good heart somewhere buried deep within us, but they actually reveal the wickedness and the foolishness of our sinful hearts. Unless your heart has been transformed and made new by the grace of God, it is not a reliable guide. As the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So even for the Christian who's been born again, who by the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit has been given a new heart that is no longer spiritually dead, and only inclined to sinfulness. For even the Christian, we constantly need God's word to guide and direct our hearts. We need the Holy Spirit to continue the renovation of our inner life, of our heart, making it less like the former sinful nature and conforming it to Christ. Here in 1 Samuel 13, we're pointed to the heart, right there at the middle of the passage. King Saul has faced a dilemma. The decisions that he made reveals his heart. The author has been dropping little hints along the way in First Samuel about what kind of king Saul would be and what kind of man he was, and here it begins to come to a head. Here begins the downward spiral for King Saul. He faces a dilemma. It reveals his heart. And what is the conclusion? He is not a man after God's own heart. And therefore, at this point, he has denied a dynasty. So I want us to consider 1 Samuel 13 under three headings today. I want us to think about Saul's situation. The situation. And that's going to be for us in the first seven verses. Saul's situation. Then number two. We need to look at Saul's sin, verses 8 through 13 of chapter 13. And we will conclude looking at and considering Saul's successor in verses 13 through 15 and following. First, the situation, Saul's situation. In the first seven verses, you and I, we could probably sympathize with Saul and the pressure and the situation he finds himself in. The scene is that he now has a standing army. He's dismissed most of his militia and the army is down to 3,000 men. 2,000 are with him and 1,000 are with his son, Jonathan. They're in two different locations. Where Jonathan is, there is a garrison of the Philistines. There's a enemy outpost that is nearby. And Jonathan does what, is, what I'm believe that the writer wants us to see is the right action. Jonathan leads his thousand men into battle against the garrison Philistine, and he has victory. But Jonathan, it would seem, has done this on his own initiative. And Saul, once he gets news of it, he realizes that what Jonathan has done, he has done for the nation, and so Saul must take credit for his son's actions. But what happens is that this provokes the Philistines. And if they were at a standstill with their neighbors, the Israelites, now they are ready to attack. And now they are prepping for war. And now Saul and his army find themselves in a precarious position. They find themselves in a dangerous position. Should have Jonathan attacked? Well, I think the author clearly wants us to say yes to that question. That, Saul, when he was first anointed king, Samuel told him, you will pass by a garrison of the Philistines and do what your hand finds to do. Saul was to, it's implied, to take up battle against God's enemies as soon as he was anointed, but he doesn't. He passes by. But here his son, his son, once given the charge, once given the command, once he is the the number two general in command for Israelite's army, he takes the initiative and he goes against their enemies. But here we see an important lesson and something we must face and understand about the life of faith and being a Christian and being a disciple and obeying God's word is that quite often obedience leads to trouble. Obedience can be costly. There is a cost to discipleship. We often think mistakenly that when we obey God and his word, that it will be immediately followed with blessing. But that's often not the case. Think about it. If you are submitted to and obeying the sexual ethic that is put forward in God's word, you are committing to delayed gratification, and saying that I will be obedient to God's word and submit, encounter to the culture around me and what everyone else is saying, in my sexual relationships I will abstain until married, until the marriage between a man and a woman. But then you find yourself waiting. You may say, "Well, I was obedient." Now, Lord, send her to me, or send him to me. I've been obedient now for years, Lord. Where are they? And for some of you, it was many years of waiting and remaining obedient and no immediate blessing. For some, it was decades. And for some of you, you're still waiting. And obedience has demanded that you take up your cross and follow Jesus. And it's a reminder that the blessing of obedience is not always received in this life. That as Christians, when we submit to God's word, we are saying that delayed gratification is what is promised, but there is truly an eternal reward. And so, in the midst of posing threats and danger, Jonathan is obedient, but now his father, Saul, is tested. He's tested. He sees the cost of obedience before him. His men are starting to scatter. The pressure is on. The Philistines are at the doorstep. And now he has the dilemma before him. Will he obey the command of the prophet of God or do something to prevent his army from scattering? Look back at verse 8. There it says, He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Here is the test of Saul's faith. Samuel has told him, wait seven days before the offering. He told him this previously, and here it seems that this is either a standing command or Samuel has given this command to the king, that whenever there needs to be an offering that is offered, you are to wait seven days for my arrival, and you are not to make the offering without the prophet there. But now Saul looks at his men. Some are hiding in tombs and cisterns and holes and rocks and in caves. Some are fleeing. Some are probably running to the Philistine side. Where's Samuel? Saul's faith is here tested early in his reign. It goes from the victory of his son Jonathan to this first major test of his reign and leadership over Israel. Will he obey God's word? In chapter 12, the prophet Samuel called the nation and their king to submit to the Lord as their king by obeying his word. And here, in the course of the narrative, it's immediately tested. And this may be troubling. God testing a man's faith. The comfort for us is those of people who are trusting in Jesus, for those who are believers, is that the Scripture does tell us that at points, God will test our faith. It is a comfort that the Scripture is not silent on this. And so there is help from God's Word when we, like Saul, find ourselves in a position of being tested, when there's the opportunity to give in to temptation or compromise but to not endure. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4, the James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Does God test your faith? Yes, but for a good purpose, that you might become more spiritually mature. James 1.12, just a couple verses later, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Does God test our faith? Yes, but those who endure, he has promised their reward. And it's a great grace of God that he says, In the testing, there will be a reward. So hold on. Do not let go. First Peter 1, 6 and 7. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does God test our faith? Yes, he does, but in order to refine the faith that we've been given. Here, Saul is tested and the impurities have come to the the surface and they remain. The Lord will test our faith in order to remove impurities and here to bring glory to his son Jesus. And relatedly, the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses 12 and 13, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In our testing, when temptation comes, God is sovereign over it all, and he is not the tempter in the trial, but he is the one who provides the way of escape. Knowing who we are through and through, our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities, and when the test of faith comes, he is the one who is able to provide the way of escape in order that we might endure. And here in Saul's situation, it can be summed up as this way: He is seeing that obedience will be costly to him, and his faith is being tested. And what is revealed? Well, that takes us to the next section in verses 9 through 13. It's Saul's sin. But what is behind Saul's sin, we see, is a foolish heart. Look back at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he has commanded you. You have done foolishly. Or it could be translated, you have done a foolish thing. It is a verb in the Hebrew. It means that Saul here has played the part of the fool. A fool does not mean someone who's only intellectually deficient. No, more often in Scripture, a fool is a moral evaluation of someone's character and person. Here in Scripture, a fool is someone who has been informed but acts contrary to that knowledge they have. Remember at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus says, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Sin is always foolish. There's no other evaluation of sin, but it's even worse to know the truth, and to choose otherwise. And in our passage, Saul's foolish actions are clearly connected to the evaluation of his heart in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. And in contrast to Saul, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Saul's faith is tested, he acts the fool, His heart's revealed. Now, we need to take a moment and think about Saul's disobedience. It was half obedience. But halfway obedience is not obedience. In verse 8, he's told to wait seven days for Samuel before offering up the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he waits seven days, but he didn't wait for Samuel's arrival. And we're given this image of The seventh day comes, Saul looks out, and Samuel is nowhere to be seen, and so he takes matters into his own hands. And as soon as the offering is done, Samuel arrives. But did you notice that Saul, when confronted by Samuel, he offers reasons for his foolish actions. Disobedience to God in the big picture, we would always say, is irrational. But you and I, like Saul, we very quickly could find reasons for disobedience. they are poor reasons. they are foolish reasons, but we can reason our way and explain away what God has clearly instructed us to do, and that's what Saul does here. He does so in three ways. In verses 11 and 12, look back there with me again. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Mi'kmash, I said, now, The Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. There he offers three reasons to Samuel. It's not a good sermon, but it's a three-point sermon that Saul has. First, he offers a pragmatic reason. He says, I saw everyone scattering. The Philistines were assembling, so I offered the sacrifice. He says, don't you think, Samuel, that The ends justify the means. I know what you commanded me to do, but you got to understand the situation we're facing. I had to do something. And that's quite often how we reason with sin. That, yes, God has said, but this seems like necessary. God will understand. I'm still working towards the same end, the same goal. I'm just taking a little different route. This is the pragmatic reason, but then also... Shockingly, he blames Samuel. He tells him, you did not come at the set time. Think about the pride and arrogance revealed in that, that to take matters into his hand and to not wait for the prophet. And he blames Samuel. He says, Samuel, I would have—I I was waiting. I wouldn't have disobeyed God's command if you would have just been here. And quite often we do that with sin. That we find a reason for our anger, not in our heart, but in what someone else has done to us. That we find a reason for our disobedience, not in our denying what God has commanded, but based on what others have done to us. And say, I wouldn't have been like this if I wouldn't have been treated like I was when I was a child. I wouldn't have done this if my spouse would have not treated me like this. No, this is the foolishness of, of Saul's heart and it's the foolishness of every sinful heart is that we justify disobeying what we know God has commanded and we find others to blame. And lastly and tragically, the third reason Saul gives is that he makes a spiritual case. He gives a spiritual defense in verse 12. He says, I have not sought the Lord's favor. Meaning, I realize, oh no, we're going into battle. I need to seek God's favor. And so he left off the part about waiting for the prophet and said, well, I was seeking God's favor. And then tellingly, at the close there in verse 12, he says, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Here's the deceit of the sinful heart. He was compelled. He says, I had no other action. I I needed God on my side. Surely God wants to bless us in battle, so we need to hurry up and get this offering up. He really believed in his heart that he was justified in his actions. He was sincere. With sincerity is a fickle standard and unreliable. We need an objective standard. We need God's word to instruct our hearts. There's a great warning here, and we could summarize these three things, is that sinful hearts will find excuses to sin and justify it. We find excuses for disobedience and it may seem like a small thing, but it is a big thing. Every disobedience is worthy of eternal judgment before a holy and righteous and perfect God. So when we make light of disobedience, we make light of what the cost of disobedience is. And it's the cross of our Lord. And when we belittle and say it's not that big of a deal, it's only, it's almost what God asked me to do. It's almost what God's word tells me to do. Our disobedience is making a mockery of what payment was required for sin. There's a warning. We'll look and find an excuse for disobedience. But here, in this chapter, we're left in such a situation saying, but for the grace of God, so am I. We all find ourselves in the situation of Saul, but that's not where the scripture leaves us. There is hope for those with sinful, corrupt hearts. And it's the successors to Samuel, the prophets that would follow him, who after Israel sins again and again against their God, begins to tell of the hope of a new heart, of changed hearts, of a people who have failed to love and obey their Redeemer, their Lord, and their Maker, will be given hearts that would be able to worship Him and follow Him and delight in Him. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31 is quoted in Hebrews 8:10, where God says, I will put my laws into their minds and invite them and write them on their hearts. God will put his law on their minds and write them on their hearts. If you're not a Christian, you may be confused about this. You know that the Christian message includes moral reformation and personal transformation. Formation. And it may seem like it is merely an outward conformity while you're denying inward desires. But the Christian message is that the God of the universe, by his spirit, saves sinners and gives them a new heart. He removes a heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh that those who would oppose his law, delight in his law, that those who sincerely would disagree with his commands begin from the heart to desire to obey his commands. It is a supernatural work. And it's one that we need. And sadly, as we go on in the book of 1 Samuel, it seems that it never happens to Saul. He's a foolish heart. Halfway obedience is no obedience. Which brings us to Saul's successor, particularly in verses 13 and 15. His dynasty has been denied. It happens at Gilgal that the prophet Samuel tells him, your son will not be king. His dynasty is rejected at the same place that he was made king. And later, just a couple chapters later in 1 Samuel, he will be rejected as king. Does this seem too harsh Well, as one writer has put it, and I quote, small matters of negligence are often considered by God to be major indicators of a heart not devoted to him. Small matters of negligence are often considered by God to be major indicators of a heart not devoted to him. This is important for us as we train and teach our children that little steps of obedience as a young person are important because you're training for future obedience and that matters of negligence grow they don't stay small so partial obedience and halfway obedience doesn't remain at halfway and partial obedience that it is a road that leads to destruction and so it is with Saul and so God early in his reign pronounces that he will not have a d- dynasty And think about this, the following verses, verses 16 through 23, it paints a grim picture for God's people. Here they have a king who's not after God's heart, and they find themselves in a helpless situation. The army is dwindling. And their opposition, the Philistines, they have so many forces that they have the luxury of sending out three different raids and attacks on the nation of Israel at once, then on top of that, it would seem that the Philistines have entered the Iron Age, but the Israelites are still in the Bronze Age, and the Israelites are without weapons, except for Saul and his son Jonathan. And then even their, their tools for, for agriculture, they, they're not allowed to have blacksmiths, and so the only blacksmiths are the Philistines. And so when they go to get their tools sharpened and repaired, they're charged a premium, God's people are helpless. They need God's man to lead them. They need a man after God's own heart. They need a man of wholehearted obedience, the man of God's own choosing. In the coming chapters, the rejection of Saul leads to the anointing of David, the man after God's heart, and he's quickly tested as well. But when he is tested, he shows obedience and a heart after God. When facing Goliath, David's faith is tested as well as the nation, and David trusts in the Lord going into battle. When Saul is pursuing David and is napping in a cave and Dave has an opportunity to take out the man who has become his sworn enemy by Saul, saying that he's going to kill David. David doesn't. He obeys God, refuses to touch God's anointed. But David, you know the story. He will fail. The man after God's own heart will waver, and he will choose Bathsheba instead of obedience, among other failings. We need a king after God's own heart. God will send his only son to be that king. He is the one who is tested and did not waver. He is the one of proven wholehearted obedience to his heavenly father. Particularly in 40 days of temptation before the enemy, we see that Jesus is tempted and tested in some ways that are similar to Saul was. Saul blamed others for his disobedience, but the scriptures say that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the language of he's being driven by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus never blames God for entering into the temptation that he finds himself in. No, he doesn't. But then also, Satan comes to Jesus, a man, flesh and blood, the God-man, hungry and tired, and says, turn these rocks into bread. Surely, the Lord will understand. It's somewhat of a pragmatic argument. You need to be sustained. You need nutrition. You've been fasting a long time. Do this one miracle. God will understand. And Jesus replies to the pragmatic temptation, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. For Jesus, the the ends don't justify the means that all the way through he is obedient in every step. Satan makes a spiritual argument to Jesus. In summary, he says, I know you're the Messiah, you know the Messiah, but no one else knows the Messiah that you're the Messiah. So if you throw yourself from the temple mount and God sends his angels to raise you up, Satan misapplies a passage of scripture, makes a spiritual argument and says, then everyone will know you're the Messiah. And Jesus replies, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here we see the great salvation secured by Christ. Romans 5:19 One man's obedience will make many righteous. Through one's obedience, many will be made righteous. See, it wasn't merely that he died in payment for our sins, but he lived the life that we should have lived. It is the active obedience of Christ. Not passively just receiving the wrath of God in our place, but obeying all that we should have obeyed. And all those who trust in him then receive the active obedience of King Jesus as their covering before the throne of God. And through his obedience, those who trust in him are made righteous. On his deathbed, J. Gresham Machen. Sent a telegram to Professor John Murray. And it was a short telegram. And he said, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Nathan was a faithful man who loved the Lord, who served him many years, who did many great things for the kingdom of God and the church. But at the end of his life, he knew that it wasn't about what he accomplished for the Lord or his obedience. That it was Christ's active obedience that he rested in with his dying breaths. And so it is for all of us. We need to be reminded that we find any good reason to disobey, but Christ never did. And that our place before God and in the family of God has been secured by his obedience and not ours. This is such a great salvation. The obedience of Christ and the gift of a new heart belongs to all who call upon the name of Jesus. Jesus makes us into a people who are after God's own heart. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Would you bow your heads with me? Our great God, we see our shortcomings and our need, and we thank you that you have provided, that you are the Lord who saves. And so as those who are covered by the obedience and the righteousness of Christ, help us to walk in the newness of life that you have given us through your spirit, that we would be those after your own heart, that we would live counter the pressures and the testings of the world around us, and that in the moment of testing we would hold on to our Savior and that we would obey your word. We need your Spirit's help, and we ask that you would fill us afresh, that we would live for your glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.